Hello, hello. This is Dr. Jason Lee. I'm joined by Brianne Hurdle again, and we are going to be talking on episode three about chronic rhinosinusitis, or CRS for short. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, yeah, so uh, Brianne, we're talking, uh, this is something that most people don't know about. No, I actually, honestly, I know sinusitis, and I mean, I've had bouts of that myself, but I don't, what's the difference between rhino? and regular sinusitis. Like I've never heard rhino before. Yeah, so we had the term rhino when it involves your nose. Uh, so really we're talking about, you know, nose and uh, sinus involvement. So um, everything in your sinuses um, drains to the back of the nose called the posterior nasopharynx. So we've got these little holes called ostia mm -hmm. and uh, they're, they all kind of drain in a similar area. And um, your ears and your eyes also drain in this area as well. So, you know, typically people will have problems uh, affecting all of these uh, areas when they have uh, sinus issues. And, uh, you know, of course, they often more, more often than not start in the nose. So that, that's the rhino sinusitis part. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, you know, sinus infections are pretty common, right? Um, and, you know, sometimes people feel that uh, they have more than their fair share of sinus infections. Uh, but, um, you know, when we look at um, the average number of sinus infections, you know, it depends on who you're exposed to, like if you have small children, for example. Um, but on average, mm -hmm. people can have up to about three sinus infections per year. Uh, that we consider okay. acute to be considered uh, normal. But if you have more than four or like regularly more than four with complications, that's kind of when we start wondering, you know, is there something else wrong going on here? Uh, and, uh, you know, the definition of chronic uh, is by definition more than eight weeks of symptoms. Um, and usually the symptoms are, okay. you know, the facial fullness, uh, pain or pressure, um, and you might get purulent discharge. So, you know, the yucky yellow green stuff coming out of your nose when you blow. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so other people get, can get, uh, quite debilitating, uh, pain in different sinus areas, the ones that are uh, blocked up or not draining well. Uh, there's often all the symptoms of, you know, rhinitis, post nasal drip. Um, I mentioned all the holes drain there. So a lot of people will get, uh, something called eustachian tube dysfunction where, the air cannot equilibrate the pressure in your middle ear uh, because they block it's mm -hmm. it prevents that uh, pressure equalization from happening. Kind of like when you fly on a plane, but you can't equalize your pressure. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. And okay, you know, that's yeah. This is an in interesting topic because a lot of people, you know, don't really think about it every day. No, I didn't actually think that sinusitis or rhinosinusitis would actually be related to asthma or any sort of allergy or, you know, I often get sinus infections when I'm sick. Like if I get a cold, mm -hmm. it'll turn into that. But what is the difference? Like, how is it related to, um, asthma? Like what, yeah. what's the, what's the, well, what's the, what's the correlation there? I'm going to give my, you know, usual long-winded answer here, but, um, <laughs> You know, acute sinus infections, you know, less than eight weeks are pretty common, as I mentioned. Um, we have this concept called the unified airway theory. Uh, and the unified airway theory um, essentially means the nose is part of the lungs that you can pick with your finger. Okay. Um, so, you know, what, and, you know that, that's a bit of a joke, but really um, the 
sinuses can get inflamed. And sometimes that inflammation leads to inflammation in your trachea and in your lungs, uh, which causes, you know, a secondary inflammation in what's called the lower airway. So below the vocal cords and downwards. So one can drive the other, for example. So sometimes the mm. asthma drives the sinus problem and the sinus problem can drive the asthma. So it's mm -hmm. another chicken or egg uh, problem. Oh. Yeah, so um, right. it, it's, you know, this problem is um, quite debilitating. So if you imagine, you just mentioned that you have a cold, you often get a sinus infection. Imagine having that for most of the year, those symptoms. And, um, you know, it affects, starts eventually affecting your sense of sleep, sense of smell. Uh, so oftentimes you get uh, something called hypoosmia or anosmia. So it'll reduce smell or, you know, complete absence of smell. Um, it forces you to mouth breathe at night when your sinuses and your nose is completely clogged, uh, which affects your, you know, sleep air, airflow dynamics, which affects your sleep quality. So this is, um, you know, quite a debilitating quality of life issue. Oh, no, 100%. Just to give an example, I was pregnant with my second and I had a flu that turned into a sinus infection and the doctors didn't know. And I had a chronic cough that was awful. And they put me on a round of amoxicillin and sure enough, it cleared up. Postnasal drip caused the cough, the inflammation. Um, but, you know, like in, in reference, like when you think about a cold or a virus and then asthma, like, how do you tell the difference? Like, is it a, like, I mean, does it start off as cold or is it just like, do you get other symptoms? Like when you think about a fever or you think about a headache or you think about, is that the actual virus version or is this asthma related if it's chronic? Yeah. So, um, every, anything can be precipitated by an infection. Um, so, you know, oftentimes by definition, it starts off with acute chronic rhinosinusitis, which leads into uh, chronic if it goes on for more than eight weeks. So the thing that may tip you off, uh, you know, could be uh, an infection uh, more often than not. Uh, other things may predispose you as well. So having a background history of allergies uh, where you get this chronic, you know, extra mucus formation, it's kind of like the perfect breeding ground for bacteria to kind of get a foothold of. Mm -hmm. And then they start multiplying. And, you know, immune system starts reacting, uh, starts throwing stuff to try to, you know, deal with this. Then everything gets thicker. Um, some people develop this phenomenon called biofilm where um, it's basically like a really hardened booger. So, you know, if you, if you imagine, um, you know, in your sinuses, it's a, an empty cavity. And if your immune system's kind of coated it with all this stuff to try to clear it out or the bacteria's, you know, created all this gunk, uh, it can harden. And when that stuff hardens, it becomes extremely difficult to treat even with antibiotics. So, um, you mentioned you got better with amoxicillin. That's a great, uh, you know, amoxiclav is a good uh, first line treatment for, you know, some, uh, most sinusitis. Uh, but if that problem has been going on for a long time, you got this biofilm thing developing, uh, the microbiome actually changes. So, you know, it, it shifts toward more of an anaerobic environment. So there's not as much air going through or circulating. So the bacteria and fungus that tend to, grow uh, changes. Uh, so the conditions change. So you can actually get a fungal sinus infection 
that becomes chronic. Um, so it, it's, it's a bit of a mess. Like, you know, you can imagine your body can't really clear this really <laughs> thick stuff sometimes out. Interesting. I've never even heard of like a fungal, like what's the difference between a fungal and a viral? Yeah. So uh, a virus, uh, usually most people clear the virus and it becomes like an acute sinusitis thing. Uh, but the virus in your body's efforts to clear it uh, often leads into a bacterial uh, secondary infection. And if the, you know, or the bacteria can be the primary infection as well. Uh, but, and if this stuff goes on for a long time, literally the, you know, the environment changes. It's kind of like you have a stuffy, stuffy, uh, wet basement. Eventually you start growing mold in that basement. And the same thing can happen in your sinuses mm -hmm. where you start growing uh, different uh, fungi uh, inside your nose. And then you get these, you know, sometimes these fungal balls and stuff that come, come out of your sinuses. Um, very occasionally, it's, it's rare, thankfully, but uh, some of these infections can get quite bad and start eating through the bone. And, you know, as you can imagine, oh. yeah, it's gross, right? But it, it's very, you know, outright dangerous too, because the bacteria or fungus um, can start invading into the brain and getting into the cerebral spinal fluid. So, you know, we, we have these things called red flag symptoms uh, when uh, people may be getting, you know, meningitis. This is actually a very common route of meningitis for people uh, from bacteria to get through the sinuses into, into the brain. It's just by proximity. Oh, it's the sinuses. Interesting. Okay. Huh. So, yeah, no, that's insane. Like most people wouldn't even think like chronic sinusitis, like whether like, you know, thinking about like virus versus through asthma and the difference. Um, so how would you go about treating chronic rhinosinusitis? Like how yeah. would like, yeah. So the, you, you can't know, see the, an antibiotics forever. Yeah. So, um, and you bring up a good point. You have to use um, a different kind of antibiotic. You know, always the principle in infectious diseases to, you know, find out what you're treating. Uh, and, you know, luckily there's a lot of good uh, studies looking at, uh, you know, what we call empiric treatment of antibiotics. So the acute sinusitis antibiotics uh, typically don't work for um, some of the more chronic sinusitis that have gone on for like, you know, sometimes years. Um, because the microbiome is so different, you really have to pick an antibiotic that's much more uh, broader spectrum uh, that kills basically everything under the sun because, you know, the bacteriology has really changed. And if you end up culturing fungus out of there, you got to, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, just go in there with, with surgery and to clean everything out. You got to literally scrape out some of the stuff. You know, there's some controversy on whether or not antifungals help. It kind of flip-flops from year to year and each conference you attend. Um, but all of these things um, can, you know, really affect eventually um, the lower airways, the lungs, if this goes on for a long time. Um, there are some genetic differences in the way people process things too and, and process the inflammation. So, you know, which brings me to the theme of this season, which is the type 2 inflammation. Some people really have a, have a skewed immune response that, uh, you know, promotes this dysregulation and the dysregulation um, in combination with other genetic predispositions can, you know, start making you form uh, these things called uh, polyps in your nose. So if your body tends to, you know, really favor a certain type of inflammation, 
called lipoxygenase mediated inflammation. Um, you know, or you know, you have uh, more of these eosinophil white blood cells with with a certain characteristic combination of genes. You'll start um, essentially coming out from the tissues into the mucosa. It's you know, it's called an intussusception. It's it basically goes through the mucosa, and you get this big white bulge thing coming out um, in, from your tissues. And you know, oftentimes they can start you know in the nose or go into the sinuses. And eventually they keep growing. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, thankfully it's non-cancerous uh, nasal polyps, but these, you know, big white outgrowths of, uh, of stuff, it's basically your white blood cell producing stuff. Uh, it's quite hard and it impacts, you know, more of the smell and it impacts your airflow. So you're essentially, yeah, carrying around uh, extra weight in your sinuses. Huh, so it affects your olfactory. Yeah. Because of your sense of smell and then the airways, of course. So can these be removed by surgery? Yeah, so, um, you know, up until a couple of years ago, um, the only way to remove them was to remove them surgically. So, you know, uh, you know, one of uh, the worst case scenarios is these things keep growing. They actually start um, invading through the sinuses, just like the bacteria invade through. So that makes it very mm -hmm. dangerous because, you know, our proximity to our brain again. And when it invades through the brain, you often actually need neurosurgery in addition to, you know, ENT or otolaryngology surgeons to uh, safely remove these. Most of the time they can be, if they're small or smaller, they can be plucked out through the nose, something called functional endoscopic sinus surgery. Um, other times, if they're big or starting to really invade or press on things, um, you know, you really have to be delicate because the eyes and the optic nerves are in this area too, as well as all the nerves that control your extraocular movements. Um, so, you, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a delicate surgery at times. Most people are able to, you know, just kind of go into the nose and, and get into the sinuses and, and pluck these out. Um, the other thing that's lucky is that these things are avascular by nature. So there's no blood supply to them. They just kind of these literally these white blood, white blocks that kind of keep growing. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so when you pluck them out, there's often not as not that much bleeding unless you're, you know, uh, happening to rip out some tissue. It is a very vascular area, though, which means that uh, all the blood vessels actually of your face, uh, they kind of go through the back of your nose and then astomose there in an area called Little's area. So, um, you know, hitting something there would cause a lot of uh, bleeding. Right. And just out of curiosity, like I, I've heard different things in regarding uh, mucosa and the gut lining and microbiome. And, you know, when you have a sinus infection and it's like, you know, when you call, when you're talking about it being related to asthma and um, the secondary inflammation, where is this mucosa created? It's the gut, isn't it? Uh, like no, if your microbiome is more balanced, do you think that would be, would help? The, the mucosa, um, you know, really uh, can be like, you know, you're referring to the gut mucosa there uh, and mucosal immunity there. Uh, but, um, you know, anywhere there's epithelium, where there's a barrier between you and the outside world, uh, you know, it's covered by a mucous membrane. So your nose and, and sinuses have their own epithelium and uh, your, their own mucosa. Uh, that's a little bit different from the gut, uh, which is very uh, highly specialized uh, mucosa to absorb. Uh, nutrients mm -hmm. and things, and uh, maybe also to tolerate. But in, in the sinuses, the mucosa is a little bit different. 
just like in the lungs, the mucosa is a little bit different from the mm-hmm. sinuses, although it's, you know, they have a lot of similarities, the lung and the sinuses, especially. And um, all of these mucosal surfaces have some similarity to the gut mucosa as well, but it's, it's a little distinct. So in your nose, for example, uh, you have a lot of cilia, these little tiny hairs uh, that are meant to mm-hmm. you know, basically push out stuff eventually. And, um, you know, interestingly, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, they, they kind of beat against uh, gravity because of the way our sinuses drain um, are as if for a quadrupedal still, uh, not, not bipedal. So it's, mm-hmm. that's why people are prone to getting um, these sinuses kind of getting blocked at times. Um, the other interesting thing is not all animals have sinuses. So, you know, it's hard to um, even do uh, animal models sometimes because the reason why humans have uh, a lot of big sinus cavities is because we have such big brains and, uh, you know, our, our muscles right. have to become weaker uh, to accommodate the, the structure of our face. Um, and uh, otherwise, our, yes. our head would be too heavy for our necks. Uh, so we got these empty, you know, filled spots, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, birds do, uh, empty holes to essentially lighten the weight off our face and, and, and brain. Hmm. Is there any different symptoms that like that go with rhinosinusitis related to asthma versus viral? Um, no, because, um, you know, a virus uh, is uh, in any infection is a trigger for for and cause of these uh, symptoms to start either the initiator or the thing that uh, kind of maintains it if your body cannot clear the infection. Um, so any mm-hmm. of these can can trigger it and propagate it. Uh, the thing with people with, um, you know, type two inflammatory prone conditions is that they'll tend to create uh, more of a mess. Their body creates more of a mess uh, right. trying to clear the infection. And in the process of creating this mess, it produces way more damage and symptoms than someone with a, you know, more, you know, balanced or regulated immune system would. So I don't know if this analogy makes sense, but it's something that people can understand um, I love war analogies because it's kind of like how, what your immune system does. It's, it's warfare against the outside world. Um, yeah, it's warfare for sure. Yeah, if you have like an insurgency or something, um, you know, people with an overactive or dysregulated uh, type 2 immune system, they'll use like a nuclear bomb to get rid of this insurgency. So often the fallout and the collateral damage is way worse uh, than it would be just, you know, sending in troops or doing... Uh, a guided missile attack you can just kind of target what you need instead of just using a carpet bomb strategy to to uh, deal with things so so yeah this dysregulation uh especially the type 2 will also you know predispose you to developing things like nasal polyps which really serve no purpose uh you know there's no reason why you have these solid things coming out of your nose and sinuses and blocking everything up, it really does make things worse than not better. Um, you, you know, unlike in the asthma model, like this doesn't really have any known survival advantages that we know of. Um, and, and it may be the reason, you know, that's the reason why it's much more rare than uh, run-of-the-mill asthma. So chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps is, is, you know, much more rare than asthma on its own. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, what would you suggest your patients do, uh, uh, along with like medical treatment? Is there anything naturally that they could do or different things that they could do in regards to, because they're asthmatic and then they're 
for having chronic rhinosinusitis? Yeah, so this is a great question because, uh, you know, my I've never met an otolaryngologist or ENT surgeon I didn't like. They're, it's like the specialty in medicine that we call as the gentleman specialty or general lady specialty because they're, they're all very, very nice, right? And, uh, you know, they're very patient and well-mannered. Um, so we often have these back-to-back -back conversations, um, you know, about uh, patient management. And I'll say, you, 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 know, you know, John is one of my friends who's an otolaryngologist. I'm like, John, can you please operate on this lady's sinuses because it's really um, driving her asthma. And then they'll come back and say, well, I can't operate on her because her asthma is so bad. You got to control the asthma. And it kind of flips mm -hmm. back and forth. We think, you know, one condition is causing the other. Um, in terms of any natural remedy, it's really hard to remedy this because by the time a patient needs surgery, um, it is almost at the point where, you know, nothing can be done. It's just a physical structure that exists. Nothing is really shrinking this down. The only thing that can really shrink this down, uh, at least temporarily, are, you know, um, oral steroids, which, uh, as you know, I, I really detest and do not like. Um, and, you know, in terms of trying to do things to try to prevent this, it's really hard to prevent this with anything because, you know, most of this is kind of just unlucky genetic predisposition to developing this. So there isn't a whole lot we can do preventatively. Uh, one natural thing you can do is try to be, um, you know, this sometimes affects people's quality of life. Uh, but I do provide a list of salicylate containing foods. And salicylate containing okay. things, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of them. The salicylates are naturally occurring in, in nature. Uh, for those that don't know, um, you know, aspirin, you know, salicylic acid is um, naturally derived originally from willow bark, um, from the willow tree. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. a lot of things have it, like apples have salicylates too. Uh, your toothpaste may have salicylates. And if you are sensitive to this, salicylates really drives this one pathway of inflammation forward. So you will experience sometimes symptoms, but sometimes it'll be kind of covertly driving nasal polyps and stuff. Um, you know, this brings me to the concept of something called Samter's triad. Um, Samter's triad refers to people who have asthma, nasal polyps with chronic sinus problems. And the third thing is something called NERD, which stands for NSAID exasperated respiratory disease. It used to be, we used to call it AERD or aspirin exacerbated mm -hmm. respiratory disease, but uh, any NSAID, um, which, you know, which is originally derived from salicylates, can drive excessive respiratory symptoms, both the nose and the uh, asthma. So upper or and lower airways, we call uh, all airways. So um, avoiding salicylates, and especially in this group of patients is, uh, I think, important. Uh, but I try to just have my patients focus on the high salicylate containing foods, uh, because you know, the, if you look at the entire list, it, it's exhaustive and it's really hard to do. Yeah, I was gonna say, is there any foods in particular that like you would tell people to stay away from in regards to helping alleviate the symptoms of rhinosinusitis? Yeah, again, it's, it's really hard because not, um, everyone is able to avoid all the foods, but 
uh, pretty much all the fruits no. uh, have some degree of salicylates and um, other foods, uh, you know, they, they have, uh, you know, smaller amounts, but, you know, if you're really sensitive, it will affect you. And uh, I see some patients where their asthma gets flared just by, you know, eating an apple um, or, you know, eating a pear. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. And some people, they just, if it, every time they brush their teeth, they have an asthma exacerbation because they have this NERD condition. So, you know, it depends on your sensitivity, I suppose. Um, and, but, you know, it's, um, if I were to run the whole list, it, it'd be long. It literally is like a two-page list of, you know, foods that contain salicylates naturally. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it would use up the last uh, 10 minutes or so just talking about the salicylate containing food. But it's something to, you know, bring up with a doctor or, or look up because uh, in some people it does make a difference. But in most, um, it, it doesn't make a huge difference. And Santos tried uh, within chronic rhinosinusitis with polyp, nasal polyps it is actually even more rare. So, okay, interesting. How? What's the percentage of people that suffer from rhinosinusitis from asthma versus yeah. say disease that gets that from a cold or a virus? So it's interesting. Um, most asthmatics, about ninety-five percent of them, will suffer from rhinitis, which is like you know nose inflammation, um, and then you know, a smaller subset will have that and sinus issues. And, you know, the, the sinus issues are not always there, but oftentimes if they become chronic, they can be a comorbidity. So studies show about a, a fifth uh, to up to a third of patients will have this comorbidity with the sinus. Some studies are actually even go higher, about 40%. But again, it depends on the patient age and population. Um, you know, whether or not you have allergies actually affects this number as well. Um, but in any event, it, it is much, um, you know, less common, I suppose, than asthma on itself. Uh, but chronic sinuses are definitely a big comorbidity. Uh, one database study that I'm aware of that looked at you know, insurance claim databases in the U.S. or Medicare and Medicaid uh, for this, you know, common uh, association uh, showed that it was around 30 to 40 percent of patients. Hmm, interesting. And are people who suffer from rhinosinusitis or of chronic, you know, this inf uh, chronic inflammation too, uh, or secondary chronic inflammation, um, what about ear infections? Like, because it's ears, throat, nose, what yeah, is, the, is there a, is there a correlation prone. there? Much oh, more prone because if the sinus uh, oh, okay. and the nasal polyps grow where the ostea are, then you get that eustachian tube dysfunction again, and it's more like permanent. It's, and, and this is why patients will suffer with permanent uh, anosmia or, or lack of smell as well, because it starts affecting the top where your you know olfactory nerves kind of uh, uh, exist. So yeah, a lot of these mm -hmm. complications can get uh, quite serious and quite annoying. Um, so, you know, the average patient will, unfortunately, if they have the surgical removal of the polyps, will regrow them every three to five years. Um, so, you know, there, wow. there was no, and there's still no known cure for this. Um, but, you know, I think one of the breakthroughs or understanding the type two inflammation is that the, the drug that we talked about before, dupilumab, can effectively mm -hmm. shrink these polyps down to nothing um, and accomplish a result okay. better than most surgeons can uh, from the inside out, so to speak. So, you know, most patients within four months will have no polyps. Uh, the only problem is 
it's not a cure. So you've got to stay on this medication uh, to kind of keep things at bay. But, you know, you get some side potential positive benefits too, okay. if you also suffer from asthma. Right. And what would you do to treat the ear infection then if they're getting ear infections chronically with the rhinosinusitis? Yeah. So you treat it like any ear infection with uh, antibiotics. Some people may need uh, tympanostomy tubes uh, to just help equalize the pressure. Uh, but, you know, uh, the maximum medicine is treat the underlying causes, which is to remove the, uh, uh, the physical obstruction and the physical polyps uh, through, you know, some sort of surgical means. You know, I can't do this. I'm not a, I'm not a surgeon. Um, you know, some patients, uh, if they're lucky, they can actually blow them out. I've literally had patients bring it in a cup for me and uh, in, in a mason jar, mm -hmm. uh, the polyps that they've blown out. Uh, but yeah, these are, um, wow. Yeah, yeah. These are, these are big though. These are big <laughs> things to take out. Yeah. And often, oftentimes it grows on like a cast of your nose and your sinuses, because that's kind of how they grow in the, in the spaces there. Mm -hmm. um, isn't there sort of a risk of being put on antibiotics all the time when it comes to like, yes. say, if you're trying to clear up a, an ear infection? I mean, I've been told, and I don't know if the statistic, like this is a right or accurate, but, you know, 70 to 80% of ear infections are you know, viral. Yeah. And then you can't really treat a virus with antibiotics. No. But then they'll turn bacterial. So, yeah. So, so it's hard. It's like, a, it's a hard judgment call because oftentimes they do turn into secondary bacterial infections. And, uh, you know, the number yes. one thing these patients always complain to me and they're like, oh my God, I've been on antibiotics for like two months. And uh, sometimes that is a strategy that we use for long term infections is, is long term uh, antibiotics. Because of that biofilm problem that I talked about earlier, it's like no matter how mm -hmm. much antibiotics you take, it just the antibiotics can't penetrate through this thick booger. Essentially. They can't you, penetrate through the biofilm. I know. Yeah, they, they can't, can't penetrate. Get yeah, so you yeah, just need that. I know. Literally scraped out at times. Um, you know, we do all sorts of funny <laughs> tricks like sinus rinses with antibiotics and and uh, anti-inflammatory medication thrown in there to try to like you know physically hopefully dislodge some of this stuff but um you know none of that stuff you know really makes a huge difference when you really need surgery other times we'll do use uh, mm -hmm. hypertonic saline which is like you know a very high salt content uh you know neti pot or, or sinus rinse and sometimes that helps uh, but again you know it may be too far gone in, in a lot of patients Right. When it comes to that. Yeah. Do you often recommend neti pots or people who have chronic rhinosinusitis? Uh, I, I recommend it for everyone with acute and chronic, uh, you know, and I do it myself. Mm -hmm. If I get an acute infection, it does, you know, studies show, especially the mm -hmm. hypertonic saline will actually help, uh, help you clear. Uh, but, you know, with this, uh, if you have this type two inflammation and predisposition to polyps, uh, essentially nothing but surgery or, a medication to rebalance the immune system can really get rid of the polyps. So a lot of the um, other medications that we talked about in the last episode for asthma have all been tried on polyp patients now too. And some of them show uh, some success in getting rid of polyps uh, as well. Um, so, you know, omalizumab, uh, they did a, a two studies uh, looking at can we use this drug to treat polyps and it does work for some people um, and we looked at uh, another drug called mepolizumab which blocks the white blood cell eosinophil 
and does it treat and it, it seems to treat uh, nasal polyps as well um but mm -hmm. again you know these drugs are um fairly expensive and it's uh you know, it's still not a cure. So, you know, what, what is the end game is what the question you got to ask here is, you know, do I need to maintain this medication forever kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that would be, that's kind of the, that's like, it's complicated. Um, what, like, I know personally, this is just myself in re relation to having because it always goes to my sinuses. Anytime I get a cold or a virus, it always turns, it can turn into that. Um, the like gum and nerve pain, like have yeah. you ever heard of anybody? Well, that's that a had... very common, uh, common thing. And people think they have a, like a dental issue, uh, when it's really, you know, yes. the, the sinuses from above kind of, uh, exerting pressure. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, the, the nerve innovation of the face is, is interesting. So you got the trigeminal nerves, uh, that sense, uh, that's cranial nerve five and, um, you know, these uh, have branches all through the sinuses and the, and the mouth. So oftentimes the body uh, is unable to distinguish where that uh, issue is coming from. Um, but yeah, this, um, you know, the, the medications that we have to treat nasal polyps and sinus disease is actually uh, one of the big breakthroughs of medicine in the last couple of years, uh, because it does give a non-surgical mm -hmm. option to these patients. Oh, that's, that's good. That's amazing. So what do you see as the like outcome moving forward being that this is sort of a tricky situation and having to treat rhinosinusitis in regards to asthma? Because So we got a little bit uh, disconnected there, but um, you're asking me the future of uh, treatment. Uh, and, you know, to understand the future, I guess we have to talk about the present. Um, you know, right now, uh, you mentioned the antibiotics and, and, you know, we don't like to keep patients on um, antibiotics for too long or unnecessarily. So really um, the antibiotics are when uh, a patient meets a criteria called CPODs. Uh, and it's, a, it's just an acronym to know, you know, when we should, you know, consider treatment uh, aggressively with things like antibiotics. But what it boils down to is if the stuff coming out of the nose is purulent, like green or yellow, uh, maybe, uh, you know, foul smelling, um, and the patient has, you know, sinus pressure, pain, fullness, um, if it starts affecting their sense of smell, then we'll often uh, like to use the antibiotics and as I mentioned, it has to be right. a kind of broader spectrum at this point because the bacteriology has changed. Mm -hmm. And ideally, if you can get them to a sinus surgeon and culture what's going on, and you've got to specifically ask me for doctors out there for fungal cultures too, because fungal cultures, unless you ask for it, it won't be done. It's, it's harder to grow fungi and it takes a longer period of time. Um, so you want to you know see what really is going on in there and to ideally um, you do want to have an ENT surgeon involved at this point, unless you're very comfortable uh, with imaging and uh, interpreting CT sinus scans and things like this. Uh, ENT surgeons are, I think, integral for this because they can, uh, they also have those cool, fancy, flexible, flexible scopes that can look inside the nose and see what's actually going on and mm -hmm. see and they can collect samples from there. They can see, uh, you know, if there are polyps there. Um, and, you know, while, while they're up there, they may be able to, you know, biopsy something, especially uh, if you're at all considering any cancerous growth or uh, something of that nature. So, 
Yeah, right. I like to involve uh, ENTs. I think I'm best friends with all the ENTs in my surrounding areas. And, uh, you know, like I said, I told you, they're really nice people, right? So I love hanging out with them. Um, <laughs> the, um, the other thing we often do is um, nasal steroids, okay? Um, and nasal steroids is really to reduce that, you know, uh, carpet bomb strategy that your body uses to kind of try to counteract that. So if we dampen this response um, from the immune system, we can get a little bit less mucus being formed. We can get a little bit more, uh, less of the tissue swelling up physically so that things can drain well. I like to use the beaver analogies, especially mm -hmm. since we're all Canadian. You know, you've got a river or, or a creek. So there's a lot of beaver dams there. You gotta mm -hmm. you know, clear that stuff out with the anti-inflammatory just to reestablish flow. So, you know, our bodies, right. um, you know, no sinuses, they actually produce quite a bit of fluid every day to keep things moist. So 1.5 mm -hmm. liters or so on average. Mm -hmm. And if, if things are not mm -hmm. you know, flowing well, if the air is not flowing well, you don't get this nice equilibrium of moistness and, uh, and airflow. So, you know, if it has nowhere to go, it's going to kind of loculate and, and cause these little pockets to form uh, that are, you know, setting you up for more infections to come. In oh, interesting. Okay. So, what like what's the ratio in regards to fungal versus bacterial or even the secondary inflammation of rhinosinusitis? So thankfully, uh, fungal ones are very uh, uh, you know uh, rare, especially in immunocompetent people. So people with normal immune systems. So even if you have you know propensity for type two, it doesn't make you immunocompetent. So you know, so an immunocompetent patient. Um, is someone who doesn't have HIV or an immune defect or an immune problem. So people with immune problems, though, uh, it becomes a, a bit of an issue. Um, you know, you're out in uh, Vancouver Island area. Uh, there was a bit of an outbreak there um, in, I believe, 2008 or 2009, where uh, a very common uh, fungus acquired a mutation to become much more pathogenic. So it, it acquired some mutations that allowed it to evade human immunity. So like a lot of normal people were getting, uh, I think it was cryptococcus, uh, you know, sinus and, and meningitis infections that they normally would be able to clear. Uh, thankfully that outbreak was uh, limited, uh, but that was affecting a lot of people's sinuses and, and their brains at that time. Uh, so I remember, cause I was taking care of a couple of these patients uh, while working out there. So. Um, yeah, you, thankfully, that's not a very common occurrence, though. Um, with respect to your no. original question, yeah, the other things we can do, if someone doesn't respond to nasal steroids, uh, a trick a lot of um, allergists and ENT doctors use is something called pomacort rinses. Pomacort is usually an asthma inhaler uh, steroid that comes in a liquid form. We'll put that into like a sinus rinse in addition to the salt, and uh, that allows you to kind of irrigate and try to get into the sinuses to limit the inflammation there. Um, other things, uh, you know, there's a lot of adjunctive treatments. I don't think they're, uh, I personally don't think they're any good. Uh, so medications like Montelukast, this is a different type of um, anti-inflammatory um, to try to limit some of the inflammation. Now, interestingly, Montelukast uh, does work uh, reasonably well for people with, you know, who have, are prone to polyps it just kind of helps retard their regrowth, uh, you know, limit how fast they regrow. Um, but again, you got to balance that with uh, risk and benefits too, because there's a few, you know, side effects to every medication that we use. So if they, 
you know, that would be the contemporary or, or current treatment. Um, and then if patients fail this, we might use oral steroids or a temporary measure and, um, and refer it to surgery essentially. But, you know, now we've got this, um, you know, a lot of medication options to try to, you know, avert surgery. But um, you can imagine, right. uh, Brianne, the main hurdle of this is that insurance companies don't want to pay for such an expensive medication when they see that you no. know, the other alternative is surgery, which costs them nothing. And especially in Canada, right, which really costs them nothing. Uh, even in the U.S., uh, surgery is much cheaper than a, than a biologic medication. Right. And what do you, what would you think would be the better, the, I mean, the better outcome? Is it surgery or is it the medication? Um, you know, I, I've, uh, you know, seen a lot of the CT imaging uh, on patients who've had um, the biologic treatment, uh, dupilumab, and as well as the other ones. Uh, so I was at the you know, GSK um, meetings and looking at, you know, their drug, mepolizumab. Uh, and when you look at the CT scan images from these studies, um, there's literally no surgeon skilled enough to accomplish the results of these medications. Like if it works, assuming you're a responder, like it basically goes to completely normal almost. So uh, we use a, a scoring system called a, a LMK, which uh, stands for Lund McKay scoring, uh, to look at the sinus and objectively grade the sinus CT results. And uh, the changes in these results are like dramatic, like you essentially have normal sinuses, which you can't get with every uh, you know surgery. So it, it's interesting how much better the medication is and and some of the uh, elimination effects. You, you know, you're targeting it from inside out. You're getting it every little bit. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. Seems like this situation is sort of a complicated one. Yeah, in regards and, and, to the secondary know, information uh, related to us. Even if they're nice, they they sometimes uh, within the specialty, there's some people who can get uh, you know um, a, a bit of a, a an ego thing. But uh, from some of the surgeons tell me, and I don't know if it's their ego, I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, they tell me that. Sinus surgery outcomes really depends on the surgeon and how careful and uh, meticulous they are. And I kind of take them for the word because not all uh, patients get, seem to get the same outcome depending on the surgeon. So it's uh, it's one, one where you have to really pick who your surgeon is. Interesting. And one last question, genetic factor or epigenetics, like when it comes to this secondary inflammation regards to asthma and this rhinosinusitis, like what's, what does yeah, that look like? Great question. I love this question. So for most, most chronic rhinosinusitis patients, it's the exact same genetic predispositions as someone who has atopic dermatitis or asthma. Okay. In fact, a lot of the genes that cause asthma will cause this issue as well. But, you know, the epigenetics, it's really hard to study for us right now uh, in humans because the only thing we can really reliably uh, and easily detect are things like methylation, uh, which is like a very simple sort of uh, way to test for that. Um, other ways, other epigenetic changes that you know, we really can't uh, know very well in humans. So it's very hard, but I suspect it's a big part of this as well, because just like all the other atopic and type two conditions, it's kind of been increasing uh, more so uh, than genetics alone would explain. So which means that there's obviously some epigenetic factors involved and probably some environmental things, you know, kickstarting these epigenetic changes to occur. Um, so, you know, it's kind of this thing where um, 
the humans and probably other animals too. You know, I've talking to a vet patient of mine. Um, these conditions are increasing in dogs and in cats as well. So there's something happening that's triggering us to adapt, right? So. Yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> the immune system is so temperamental. Yeah, but, it, you know, it's probably good that it can uh, quickly adapt to different environments. And uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, obviously we have these mechanisms that, you know, allow us to mutate or, or adapt faster, I should say, because there's no mutation going on. Adapt faster than uh, mutations alone would account for. A hundred percent. It's just interesting, like with these, like, again, the secondary inflammation and how much and all these different things that it can cause and depending on the person and how they respond. And the immune system is just so unique to every single person. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. And there's so much diversity, right? Because, you know, most people don't suffer from these kind of conditions. And, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, in certain environments and or other environments, they may have a survival advantage. And it's, it's really interesting on a kind of like a grander scale to think about, you know, why do these things happen? And why do some people react this way or another? And, you know, we don't have the answer for everything. Mm-hmm. No, hence is to medicine, always evolving and changing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's and awesome. Yeah. So we'll, we'll um, end here, I guess, unless uh, anything else you want to ask or anything else you think? No, I don't think so. I think, I think that's, I think that's about it. Just based on my, 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 my own questions, unless you want to add anything that I missed. No, I think we're good. I think we're good. So uh, we're going to, you know, call it a day and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Jason. We'll talk to you soon.